Hi, and thanks for listening to the Funnel Side Chats podcast. This series features Nadim Hossein, the founder and CEO of BrightFunnel, in conversation with marketing thought leaders. Subscribe and tune in to hear what the future of B2B marketing looks like from different perspectives and get an up-close and personal look into some of today's most innovative and creative minds. We would love for you to tweet along with us. You can find us on Twitter, at BrightFunnel and at Nadim Hossein. So without further ado, I'll kick it over to Nadim. Hello, everyone. This is Nadeem Hussain, co-founder and CEO of BrightFunnel. We are back for another episode of our Funnel Side Chat. Uh, today, we are here with Ardath Albi, and I'm um, really pleased to have you here, and I want to introduce yourself. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Uh, my name is Ardath Albi, and I am a B2B marketing strategist. I have a firm called Marketing Interactions, where I work with clients to build persona-driven content marketing strategies for B2B companies. Wonderful. That is certainly a topic we're going to d- dig into a little bit. But before we do that, I'd, we'd love to hear about your, your background. How did you get into this uh, role you're in today? Yeah, well, kind of an interesting story. Back in the year 2000, I was the president of an inter- internet startup company. Um, think first iteration of marketing automation, including your website. But this was back when there were a big custom install, so we didn't have SaaS yet. And back in the year 2000, corporate websites were basically brochures. So they'd take that content, put it into the new application, and nothing would change. Hmm. And so as a diehard writer, and I have a degree in literature, I started helping them rewrite their content. And they started to see everything change. And over the next couple of years, I realized I was in the right place at the right time to do something I truly loved. So in 2007, I jumped and started my own firm. Wonderful. And what was it that made you start your, your company, uh, the marketing automation company? What was the problem you saw at the time? <clears throat> well, that was my sister's company. She developed the technology. Um, she's since transformed into a SaaS company called mm-hmm. Janu that serves small and medium-sized businesses. What she saw, she'd always been a technology architect and had worked with a lot of big companies. And what she saw was the need for marketers to be able to run the tech themselves. Mm -hmm. And so the concept was a bit ahead of its time because marketers at that point didn't want to run the tech. They wanted IT to run the tech. So the way she built the platform enabled marketers to not only run nurture programs via marketing automation, Mm -hmm. but also to run and update their websites and manage all the content. And it was an idea that was a little bit ahead of its time, Mm -hmm. I think. And how did you end up studying literature? So let's go back to your, you know, your, what, your degree and your, your first job. And, and sort of how did you get even to that point in the year 2000? Well, I have a degree in English literature and a degree in business. And I ran um, hotels and country clubs for 20 years. I used to go in and turn them around and make them profitable mm-hmm. um, for the owners and then move on. And in 1996, I was diagnosed with... Um, liver disease mm-hmm. and I needed a transplant and so I worked running the country club I was running till 99 and then I couldn't I wasn't employable because I was bright yellow mm-hmm. <laughs> waiting for my transplant and so my sister called in the year 2000 and said come to Minneapolis and run this company for me mm-hmm. I want to build this software and so went to Minneapolis ended up getting the transplant the next year um, so everything worked out well, <laughs> wonderful. And then, and then after that period, um, t- tell us about what transformation you saw. So, so you were a little bit ahead of your time. But then after that, Eloqua and Marketo came along. 
um, what evolution did you see in, from that f very first generation to the, you know, maybe the second generation of marketing automation? Oh, I, it's hard to detail. You know, I've known John Miller since the beginning of mm -hmm. Marketo and watched that uh, come along as well as Eloqua and, you know, the others. Um, I think the biggest differences, what I've seen develop is really how to use the data. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's been a lot of different iterations of how to look at marketing automation. Um, my favorite one was the set it and forget it one where you could just set everything up and schedule it mm -hmm. and, you know, push the button and people thought that was great, only it doesn't work, mm -hmm. you know, because you kind of have to keep on top of what's going on and understand context for the behavior you're seeing. Um, I think it, we're in an interesting place right now where people are starting to move beyond the glorified email blast tool as they've treated it to really utilizing the data, the lead scoring opportunity, um, you know, the different features other hmm. than just using it as a glorified email blaster because I think they're getting smarter about the strategy and the way to use content. I remember the first thing that happened when people were implementing marketing automation was they didn't realize the volume of content they needed. Mm -hmm. And I'm not so sure over time as this played out is, is if it's a volume thing or if you just need to have a strategy for your content. So when you're sending it out and engaging in your nurture streams, you're actually building forward momentum. What, what's your opinion on that? Like I think you need one. less more rather than more. I think, you know, it's what I talked about in my session today was, you know, this need to tell the story across the entirety of the buying process. Mm -hmm. And so every interaction as part of that story needs to cause some kind of action to occur. Absolutely. And they build more momentum as you answer more questions and help people build confidence towards solving the problem and actually mm -hmm. embracing change and making the purchase. And I think... Number one, there's too many random acts of content that aren't connected to anything. Yeah. You know, number I two, we, we, I know, we make it too difficult. One of the examples I used today was binging. And so I asked the audience, you know, how many of you binge on content, like with Netflix or mm -hmm. whatever, watch an entire season in one sitting, and a bunch of hands went up. And I said, okay, so you guys are all marketers, you're mm -hmm. business people. Why would you think that your audience in a B2B sale isn't doing the same type of behavior. Mm -hmm. And so I said, but the problem is, is the way we display the content and organize it and present it doesn't enable binging. Mm -hmm. So I showed like a typical website where, you know, the corporate hierarchy where you have products, solutions, and you have resources, and under that you have videos, white papers, webinars, whatever, but none of that is grouped into telling the story. So we're actually expecting our prospects to go out and say, okay, I need to find a video and let me go find a white paper on this mm -hmm. subject. Let me search for a case study. Instead, what we need to do is be building content hubs, either organized around a specific industry or by role mm -hmm. or by problem to solution journey. And not only providing access to the content so they can pick where they're at in the story, but also content they need to use to engage with other stakeholders on the buying committee, right? Because they have to get everybody to consensus, but we don't think about how all of that interplays. Yeah, and, and you know, you have a very unique expertise and, and a perspective on, all, on this idea of personalized content. What do you think is your superpower? Like what lets you be so good at this that someone can learn from or recognize themselves? Well, I think I'm innately a storyteller. So I've been writing since the fourth grade. I've written five novels. I've studied fictional storytelling. You know, um, I'm a member of the Romance Writers uh, mm -hmm. Association. 
But I think it's knowing how characters interact with each other and how to build a story mm-hmm. that because of the amount of years that I ran companies and did turnarounds, applying it to business is kind of a second nature thing. Mm-hmm. And I think where people get hung up is they take story too literally. And so for business people, most of the time when you say story, it's you know your, your CEO up on stage sharing an anecdote at a conference mm-hmm. or it's a case study. And you don't think about this orchestration of information sharing in a conversational way mm-hmm. that can be presented as a story with your buyer as the hero of the story. A lot of companies say it's the product that's the hero, mm-hmm. but it's not. Yeah. Product isn't doing anything for you. It's not buying, yeah. not making the decision. So the hero is your audience, right? Your buyer. Mm-hmm. And if we can put them at the center and, you know, it, it's sometimes very hard to do that. I was doing a workshop for a client down in Houston and we spent close to half an hour. I was trying to get them to figure out two words in email copy that flipped the entire focus from com- customer focus to company focus. Mm-hmm. Two words. That's all it took. And I wanted them to see it for themselves. I could have told them, but they would learn. Mm-hmm. It took them 30 minutes to actually get to, oh my God, <laughs> how silly, you know? Yeah. And I think. Some of those things are the difference. I have an innate ability to look at that, and I think it's um, it takes a little more work for for somebody else. But once you get it, you get it. So yeah, that's that's a wonderful wonderful answer. I think it, I think what I find so exciting about marketing is that it combines the storytelling with business and data increasingly, and and that intersection is very hard to be good at both, uh, which is what makes marketing fun and challenging. I think. Yeah, I agree. Me. Um, so maybe let's shift on to the other side of, of sort of that marketing spectrum. Um, so we're seeing all this technology emerge, you know, since, uh, you know, the early marketing automation. Now there's allegedly 5,000 tools. Marketers are, certainly they're telling us that they're exhausted and they need our help or their own, you know, prioritization of what they're doing. Uh, so where do you, like, what is your take on all that? Is this, is all this technology good? Are we getting becoming better marketers are we helping our customers or is is this all uh, a bad thing (laughs) well yeah that diagram that scott brinker has scares me to death but um with all of the technology i think the problem for me is that marketers look at technology as the silver bullet Mm -hmm. so give me the tech to solve my problem you know Mm -hmm. they want the easy answer and it's not easy and so In the work I do, the reason why there are so many crappy personas out there is because people don't want to put the work in, so they don't develop them correctly. So you get these personas that are very shallow, and then, of course, the next thing you hear is personas don't work, you Mm -hmm. know? And so I think the problem is just like the set it, forget it phase we went through with marketing automation, all of that. I think there's a lot of really interesting technology, but the thing I really think is that if you don't have a strategy... For what you want to accomplish, how do you even know which of those 5,000 technology mm-hmm. applications or solutions, platforms, whatever you want to call them, you need, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it depends on where your audience is hanging out online, how you're going to engage them, you know, it, it's the same thing doesn't work for everyone. So I think you have to have a strategy in place first, and then that would guide what do you really need to do to execute, mm-hmm. right? What different capabilities do you need given what you want to accomplish? And so I think that the thing that's bothered me for a long time, if you watch Content Marketing Institute's research that comes out every year, Mm -hmm. every year we have 
gotten less and less effective as marketers feel about their work in marketing, mm-hmm. less and less effective. In fact, I think the thing that shocked me the most last year's research was 55% of marketers said they weren't even sure what an effective content marketing program looked like. Mm-hmm. 55%. We've been doing this for, what, 10 years now? Yeah. 55% don't know what's effective, but yet they're still creating more content, investing more money, and most of them don't have a strategy. So what do you think is, what can we all do to, to, to measure the effectiveness better of content marketing or any kind of marketing? What, what's, what's missing? Uh, is, it, is it the priorities of the, the behavior? I think they don't have clear goals. Mm-hmm. So for marketers, here's the problem. It's kind of a chicken and egg. So marketers get evaluated, most of us, if you're in demand gen, based on how many leads you generate. Mm-hmm. Right? So number one, what's the definition of a lead? Right? And how are we mm-hmm. making sure that the evaluation matches what's important? But here's the thing. It's not just about generating leads. It's about nurturing them all the way through the buying process. It's about building relationships. Mm -hmm. It's about a bunch of other stuff. Yet the main criteria that marketers get measured on is this thing called the lead. So it's not effective. We need to change the way we're measuring because if, if you were in that role and we're told, you're being evaluated on whether or not you generate 500 leads for us this month Mm -hmm. or quarter, whatever, what are you going to focus on? Leads, yeah. yeah. And that was my biggest so, frustration as, as a CMO was, you know, you had those MQL, and then they went from leads to MQLs, which is a half upgrade that Marketo gave us right. and Elqua. But then I still couldn't tie that to revenue. At least so for me, at least the answer is I want to tie the leads generated by content and all the other activities to revenue and pipeline. Are you, is, well, what we need to look at now, here's the argument that comes back and says, well, we as marketers have no control once we hand that lead over to the sales team because it's their job to close them. So and quite often, we as marketers are told hands off. It's yeah. now our lead is sales. Here's the problem, though. We need to look at it differently. So I believe, and if we are enabling our salespeople with content, and we have a way to track that as well, mm-hmm. we can measure by contribution to revenue. Absolutely. You know, I don't think we need we can be held responsible for actual closed revenue because mm-hmm. we don't have that play at the end, which either wins or loses. Mm-hmm. But we have the ability to drive that momentum with our content. And if we're creating content instead of for campaigns that are short stop and end things, mm-hmm. we create it across the continuum the of the entire journey. Then we're also supporting sales, right? A sales enablement content. We should be able to assess contribution to revenue yeah absolutely i think a lot of things that a lot of it takes time for the market to mature but, but people are realizing that there is a whole journey that you do have to orchestrate actions throughout the journey and content is a big part of that obviously there's sales interactions there's trade shows and things like that um so, so to me that's very exciting uh, as kind of a future of, of where we're going as, as an industry what about you what, what is the most exciting thing about the state of marketing today for you oh i think it's more exciting than ever i just love the stories mm-hmm. they get to tell you know i i get so immersed with my customers <clears throat> and their customers that i've learned so many fascinating things mm-hmm. and just figuring out what story is right for each customer based on what they sell who they sell it to you know i mean right now for the first time I have a number of industrial clients, mm-hmm. and they these companies have always been sales-driven, 
They've never done content marketing before. That's just rare. For the last seven years, I've worked with companies that were already mm-hmm. embracing it. So these companies have never done it before. They were market leaders. And what happened is they started losing market share to their competitors who were embracing content mm-hmm. marketing. So they've now come and said, okay, we need to do this. Yeah. They don't know anything about it. So it's a total education play, which can be good for me because I can teach them the right way, yeah. you know, at the beginning. But it can also be really bad because they're sales driven and product driven. And so we've got, I've got one right now, one project where the sales team is dug in saying, we are not playing this game. You know, we are in control of the customer. We're not sharing them with you. Hmm. We don't need your help. Go away. Leave us alone. Yeah. You know, and so trying to figure out how to shift that culture yeah. is really interesting to me. Like, what does it take? And it's an interesting story. There's so many reasons why marketing could take a load off the sales team just by virtue of the nature of their um, sales cycle, which mm-hmm. is very long. So sales should be focused on you know, the prospects that are in market. Mm -hmm. And then there's like a six to eight year span where they're not in market because it's a heavy equipment sale, right? So Mm -hmm. during that time, sales doesn't do anything with those customers. Marketing should be out there nurturing, building relationships. You know, we've even offered to do it under the guise of the salesperson. So using Mm -hmm. their SIG line on the emails and sales wants nothing to do with it. And so so right now we're doing some education programs. Mm -hmm. We're trying to negotiate an SLA that will allow us for a pilot mm-hmm. to engage, you know, even like if they're eight years out. Sure. Yeah. Even, you know, just to, so we're not close, but you know, they really believe that the salesperson is responsible for building the customer mm-hmm. relationship and they don't want anybody messing with their leads. And so this kind of company also believes that if they put all the data in the CRM, their salespeople are no longer valuable mm-hmm. and they could lose their job. So Somewhat they're hoarding data, yeah. right? So very old school. In, in some ways, I think it's interesting to hear you say that. I think some of that maturity, most companies are past that, it seems, at least the folks that attend this kind of conference. But in the majority of the market, probably not. Uh, and in the marketing function, with marketing data, that's much more of the Wild West. The data itself is new. Marketing operations and revenue operations are still being defined. So it'll be interesting to see um, how things evolve. But one of the obstacles I see is, you know, outside of marketing, it's the CEO, the board. I'm sure you have interactions where you advise some folks that are maybe above the marketing team. What do you think is the biggest misconception that, let's say, a non-marketing CEO has about marketing? That if you could change their perception, if they're listening to this, that you'd want to change that? Boy, that's a good question. I could probably come up with a bunch of those. I think it's being able to prove impact. Now, whether you want to call that ROI mm-hmm. or contribution to revenue, or it's got to be something that impacts a business metric that the executive cares about. They don't care about leads. Mm-hmm. Leads don't mean anything to them. Leads are not revenue. Leads are not money. Yeah. You know, They don't care that we publish the blog five times a week. They don't care mm-hmm. about any of that. What they care about is the end result tied to whatever business metric they are responsible for or focused on at the time. And so we have to learn to speak the language of business as marketers. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I, I ran companies for so long and, you know, I read P&Ls and all the rest of it. And I can mm-hmm. look at the big picture. Most of the marketers I work with have always been within teams inside corporations, mm-hmm. not responsible for all of that. Yeah. And so if you don't, you know, 
grow into that. You don't have the accounting background, the finance background from having to be responsible for those things. Then it's sometimes very hard to understand, you know, how to have an effective conversation at the executive level. Hmm. And so I help marketers build presentations, you know, proof Mm -hmm. points, whatever, to go and sell the executive teams on moving forward with marketing projects based on what they can accomplish. But we have to look at it differently. The things that we care about as marketers that we get Mm -hmm. all excited about don't matter anything to the executive team. So we have to really figure out how to tie that to business. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir for sure on that. What about some of the, I think, you're, you're talking about tying marketing to business metrics. I think one of the hot topics now is account-based marketing, which in a lot of ways is, t- is bringing together sales and marketing closer together. Um, what is your, is it, is it something new? Is it something we've always been doing? What is your take on uh, ABM as a trend? Well, I don't know. It's funny. I'll tell you. <laughs> I was writing the abstract for my session at Marketo's uh, Nation Summit mm-hmm. in April. And I sent it over to my coordinator and she came back and said, can we put ABM in the title, please? Because I was writing about what is now known as account-based marketing. The thing is, I've always done marketing that way. So because I'm persona driven, so if you were then, let's say you take your personas and put a company profile on top of that Mm -hmm. to, to define the account and the characteristics of the account. And then you have those personas that roll up underneath that. And then you create your marketing programs based on that. That's account-based marketing, yeah, essentially. Sure. You know, I mean, if you're focused one account at a time, you're going to get a lot more specialized. Yeah. But most people don't have that latitude, you know, so they're focused on the top 10 or the top 100. It's a slider. That's right. You're deciding how far Exactly. So, but I've always done it that way. So yeah. when I was writing up my abstract, I wrote about it that way. And she says, this is account-based marketing. We need to put it in the title. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, you're right. It is, you know. But and so why do you think it's, uh, what is the... I guess the timing now where people are getting excited about ABM. Well, because we're saturated now with content. And so do you know who Doug Kessler is? Uh, I actually don't know. Okay. Doug Kessler is, he's based in London. He's, um, I think co-founder of Velocity Partners, but Mm -hmm. he is one of those outspoken British marketers, Mm -hmm. kind of the dry wit type of thing. (laughs) And he produced a manifesto called crap content back several years ago. Hit the nail right on the head. Mm -hmm. We haven't done the work to be relevant to our audiences. Mm -hmm. We're pushing out content like it's a quantity versus quality Mm -hmm. thing, just like we deal with leads, right? And so, you know, I think, and there's just too much noise. I mean, if you look at the amount of content that gets published every day, so now people are complaining about Mm -hmm. how do I rise above the noise? How do I get attention? I'm doing this content marketing thing, but nobody's paying attention to any of it. And so I think account-based marketing was kind of like, okay, we need to save ourselves from this. Mm -hmm. And a realization that we had to contribute to revenue, which means if we can work with sales inside of accounts and participate in that and the deal actually closes and revenue comes from that, it's hard to argue that marketing wasn't involved in helping create that. And so I think it's kind of an answer to the struggles marketers have had trying to prove value. The problem I have with it is I still don't see a lot of strategy going on. Mm -hmm. And so it's just kind of like, okay, we're going to target these 10 accounts. And now people are saying we can do it with just a company profile. We don't need personas because it's just based on the people in the account, which is kind of 
in some cases, if you're only focused on one account, okay. But in other mm-hmm. cases, they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing that really bothers me is all of this talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning and people saying, you know, we're just going to mine the data and we'll create personas based on the data. Mm-hmm. Where's the context in that? Where's the human? Yeah. You know, without context, data could mean anything. And so, you know, you can interpret what somebody does in a number of different ways, just given your disposition, right? So without context, if they just count on data to create a persona, thinking it's a silver bullet, they could end up screwing themselves big time because it doesn't match up. And even having the data, the the first step is to have the data and for any kind of AI or machine learning. And the data has to be structured by a human, right? Someone has to say something like, this is this persona or that persona. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a lot of thought. And if you don't have a strategy about your business and your marketing, you're certainly not going to have, uh, you know, you're not well positioned to have success with letting a machine figure that out. But obviously what we'll see what happens in that domain. I think it's very, very promising. I think like anything, it's going to, you know, it's going to take yeah. smart people. I think so too. And I think, on. but the other thing I think too, is that we don't tend to commit long enough. Content marketing isn't like I'm going to launch a content marketing program today and success is going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, it's B2B, yeah. you know, and so people don't commit long enough and it can take years. I mean, I did a program several years back for a big complex technology sale and they wanted to break into a new market and they estimated it was going to take them three years. So we built the personas, we built a nurture program and at the 18 month mark, they started getting response from the leads who were actually returning calls. And what happened was one of the leads actually called one of their salespeople and said, I need a meeting with you. And when the salesperson showed up, he whipped out one of our nurture articles that marketing had created. He had printed it out and said, show me how to get this. Well, there's proof, you know, (laughs) you want proof that marketing drives sales. So that was resulted in a $5 million deal. And then they kept within the next uh, eight months, they closed five more. That's a nice payoff. And ahead of time, for what they estimated, it would take them to break into a new market based on what it's taken to break into other new markets. Yeah. So while it did take a long time, it didn't take as long as it would have had they just been doing their normal ad campaigns and that kind of thing. But we need to commit. A lot of uh, companies say, nope, this isn't working six months in. Yeah. And yet I look at them and say, but your sales cycle is two and a half years. You only gave content marketing six months, right? So how are you deciding this doesn't work if you haven't been through a full cycle? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you reach this tipping point Mm -hmm. where once you've been through a full cycle, then things will continue to close as you continue on. You know what I mean? Yeah, no. You have to reach the point of, (laughs) you know. Yeah, we've been trained, I think, by doing a lot of things like online ads where you don't want to waste money. um, And sometimes people think that applies to everything. In fact planning for this for this show is one of the things we talked about, which which is that look, we, we think it's a good idea because CMOs are asking us for connecting with other CMOs for community. There we think there's a gap in the market for more strategic content around the intersection of sales and marketing and, and business. Um, time will tell. But but certainly, you know, we have a strategy, you've got to go put some some wood behind the arrow. And um, yeah, it definitely resonates with me in terms of content um, strategy. So in, in closing, I want to ask you something that, that I think you're a great person to ask, which is you know, you're a writer and a reader. Um, what are some things that 
um, listeners should go out and read, whether it's marketing or even if it's not marketing, but, but especially on marketing, I'm curious. Hmm, that's a good question. I read a bunch of different stuff, and I think you need to become really familiar with the industry that you're trying to sell to. I think you need to understand everything going on in it, as well as how your different audiences relate to that. But I think it's, you know, I try to spend as much time learning as much about my clients' audiences as I can. I, I can learn about their product. I want to know their audience, and then I can figure out how to tell the story of what their product enables in a way that engages based yeah. on the industry dynamics, the personas or audience dynamics, the context of where they might be in the situation. But until you understand all of those things, it's really hard to put together a good strategy. You know, it's just like when you write and you're learning to write. Nine times out of ten, you could probably lob off the first three paragraphs, not mm -hmm. miss them, yep. because we take too much time to get to the point. Yeah. You know, and so most of the time when I'm doing editorial coaching for my clients who are bringing writing teams in-house, one of the first things is take that <laughs> two-paragraph intro yeah. off because you don't yeah. get to the point. And, you know, with, a, with content these days, we've got to hook them fast. Yeah. You know, I mean, if there's no reason for them to be there or they can't spot it soon, they just leave. And so we have to know our audiences almost as well as they know themselves. And it takes a lot of work. And once you've done it once, you're not done because they continue to change, mm -hmm. right? As the industry changes, the technology that supports the industry changes, yeah. the law changes, regulations, whatever it is, right? So you have to stay on top of that. But I think without a really good understanding from the customer perspective, it's hard to write good content. Yeah, well, on that note, thank you so much for your time, uh, for sharing the great words of wisdom and uh, spending a little time with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.